Welcome back to the big broadcast. Here's your hosts, Mike Martini and Mark Magistrelli. To help us wrap up this evening's big broadcast, we turn once again to that master thespian, Orson Welles. <laughs> we know he talked about this, picking up a little bit of money in the early sure. 50s to help finance his movies by taking on the lives of Harry Lyme. This is one of the later episodes in the series, I think pretty much toward the end of the series run. June 13th, 1952 is the date I have for blackmail is a nasty word. Here he is, Orson Welles, on tonight's big broadcast. Presenting Orson Welles as the third man. The Lives of Harry Lyme. The fabulous stories of the immortal character, originally created in the story The Third Man, with zither music by Anton Karras. I've messed around in a lot of messy things. You know me, I'm certainly no angel. But I never had anything to do with murder, or dope, or blackmail. Except just once. With blackmail, that is. Not my fault, either, as I think you'll agree. But all the same, I'm sorry to have ever come within breathing distance of that caper, because as several people during the course of this little story had occasion to point out, blackmail is a nasty word. That's the title of the tale. Stick around and see if you don't agree. It all started in Marseille back in 47. I was running cigarettes into France in those days, cigarettes and a few other commodities, as I think I've told you before. And I had a nice little sailing boat with an auxiliary, typical pleasure craft of those waters, to use as a cover. This was in September, and I'd just come into port that afternoon. A few of us had been having dinner in the town. I was on my way back to the boat alone. It was late, about four in the morning, cold, rather foggy. Suddenly, looming ahead of me in the mist and lurching drunkenly, I saw the figure of a man. A big fellow he was. I thought I'd stay out of his way. Marseille's a tough town, one of the toughest in the world. It's a good place not to have any trouble in, so... That's why I tried to keep clear of the drunk. But before I could get out of the way, he caught sight of me, uttered a strange, muffled sort of cry, and suddenly threw himself forward. I braced myself for a fight, but before I knew it, he was down on his knees in front of me, groaning. Then all at once I realized he wasn't drunk at all. That all that wet on his chest was blood. I never found out who did it. Even after I took him out of my yacht... Tried to do what I could for him. Never told me who it was that had stabbed him. The knife had gone in just over his heart, and by dawn it was pretty clear that he wasn't going to live through the day. He seemed to realize it, too. They got me. And it doesn't matter why me. Maybe they were right. They got me, and now very soon I'm going to die. What is your name? Lyme. Harry Lyme. I've heard of you. You've quite a reputation, Monsieur Lyme. I, I call you Harry. Okay. I am Draco. Yes, I see from your face that you have heard of me, too. You 
You called me Marcel. Okay, Marcel. That way I spend my last hour or so among friends. Marcel Bracco. Real Marcias. Born quite a while ago anyway. Died September 12, 1947. Profession, crook. All kinds of crook. Some of the dirtiest kinds I knew there. Among other things, I'd heard that Bracco was the chief of the Amazons. There was a gang of girls. Crooks, all of them. Used it. No, the big ugly man in my berth wasn't one of the nice people. And you mustn't think because I'm telling you this story that I have anything to say in his favor. But he was a guy. See what I mean? He was somebody. And he was dying. Steady, old man. Easy does it. I'm with you. I haven't got time to make a wheel. I, I know that sounds like a joke, but I'm simply steady. I'd like to leave you something to show my gratitude, something to remember me by. That's okay, old man. No. All I can give you is this. And it's worth something, Harry. It's worth quite a lot if I give you a name. A name, Harry. Do not think I am joking. This this name is just as good as money or jewels. Remember it. The name it is Maurice Chivolet. Did you hear that, Harry? Chivolet. Maurice Chivolet. Well, who is he? Oh, he's many things, Harry. He's a very many different sorts of man. You must remind him of this. It will be like money to you. Where do I find him? In the Chamber of Deputies of the National Assembly of France. What do I say to him? Say, say I'm dying, Harry. Hold my hand. I am, old man. I'm holding. I haven't time to tell you. You must have Julien. Julien? Yes, Julien Moreau. Moreau? Moreau. But he was dead. I pulled the sheet up over his big, ugly face and went out of the cabin and locked the door. Three months later in Paris, in a little nightclub in Montparnasse, I ran into Julian Moreau. Julian was a newspaper man, and in his way, Julian was quite a guy, too. Not a crook, just a newspaper man and a good one. I'd struck up an acquaintance with him, and after a couple of weeks, it had brightened into something resembling friendship. So tonight, I thought the time had come when I could afford to approach him on the subject of my legacy. A precious name. Julian. Yes, Harry? I want to ask you a question. Go ahead. I'm going to mention a name. Well? If it means anything, do you let me know? <laughs> Don't be so mysterious, Harry. What's the name? Givole. Maurice Givole. Why do you ask? Why don't you answer? Excuse me, Harry. I want you to tell me why you mentioned that name. You won't tell me anything about him unless I do? I'm afraid not. Well, there was a guy down in Marseille told me that name. Said it was worth money. Worth money? Yes. That's what he told me. He was dying at the time. That man in Marseille, he must have been a criminal. Well, don't go all prim and moral on me, Julian. Yeah, as a matter of fact, he was something along those lines. What of it? I'm not going moral on you, Eric. I'm nothing very special myself. But when you say to me that the name Maurice Givlet is worth money, <laughs> well... Well, what? There's a nasty world for that, Harry. A nasty world for that kind of money. What do you mean? Chantage. 
I don't get that. That's French, Harry. French for blackmail. A little later, though, Julian loosened up a little. After a few more drinks. Harry? Yes? That criminal in Marseille you were talking about. Well, you brought him up, Julian. I was asking about a certain Monsieur Givelet. I know. Harry, was the criminal's name Braco? Marcel Braco? Yeah, but how do you happen to know him? You're not in the rackets. You're a newspaper man. Marcel was with us for a while in the resistance. He was a brave man, and we got to be friends. Then later, we quarreled. That was after the war. He came to me here in Paris, wanted information about this Givelet. I gave it to him. Givelet is an important man in the government. And through the paper, I arranged an interview between him and Marcel. But I told you, Harry, blackmail something I can't forgive. And Marcel was blackmailing this Givelet? Yes. Not for money, but for protection. Police protection. Marcel, as you probably know, had that gang they call the Amazons. But uh, what was he blackmailing Givelet about? What, what did he have on him? Plenty. And you know what it was? Certainly. Marcel told me. Exactly what was Givelet's past? Ah, uh, Harry. That's Mr. Givelet's secret. <laughs> and yours, old man. It's yours, too. Hmm? Yes, Harry, as you say. It's mine, too. Oh. Must be something pretty bad. Bad enough for a man who's trying to make something decent of himself. Oh, don't think I like Mr. Givelet. I hate him. But as long as he behaves himself, I won't denounce him. As long as he behaves himself. So that's your price, is it? <laughs> Don't you see, old man? In a way, you're a blackmailer yourself. Then, some months later, in the lobby of the Georges Sank in Paris. Calling Mr. Lyme, Monsieur Harry Lyme, yes. Mr. Lyme? Yes, boy. Monsieur Lyme? Yes, what is the phone call? There is a lady to see you, Monsieur Lyme. She's waiting in the lobby. A lady? Young or old? Young, Monsieur Lyme, and very pretty. Well, either way, old man. What are we waiting for? Hello. You are Harry Lyme? Insist on the original, honey. Accept no substitutes. This is it. I don't understand. I'm Harry Lyme. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Who are you? We haven't got around to that yet. You have not given me a chance to tell you. True enough. My name is Muller. Heidi Muller. Glad to know you, Heidi. Shall we go into the bar and have a drink? It's a little early for dinner, but... This is serious, Mr. Lyme. I've come to see you on business. I was afraid of that. Well, go ahead. I have been told about you, Mr. Lyme. Idle gossip, honey. You know how people talk. I'm a straight, upright, clean-living, law-abiding citizen. Uh, What is it you had in mind? Well, I... Which particular law did you want me to break for you? I want a passport. Passport? Oh, that's easy. We can arrange that for you in a couple of days. The man here in Paris does very good work, but the best phony passports come from Amsterdam, if you're willing to wait. It is not as simple as that. Oh? I want a passport for my father. Well, just give me his name and the other particulars and the photograph. By the way, what kind of passport do you want? American, British, Panamanian? Lad, my father is not here. He's in Romania. Romania? Yes. On the other side of the Iron Curtain. And you want me to get a passport to him in Romania? That's right. That's practically impossible. Uh, Mr. Lyme. Well, now, now, mind you, when I say practically, uh, that's what I mean. It's practically. For Harry Lyme, nothing is strictly impossible, just expensive. Uh, 
if you get what I mean. No, I did not. Well, how much dough can you spend? Money? Yes, money. If you want to get a passport to your father in Romania... I'm not going to pay anything, Mr. Lyon. What? You're going to do this for me as a gift. You've come to the wrong man, Heidi. I'm sorry, I'd like to help, but I never break the law except on a strictly commercial basis. Besides, an operation like this... Mr. Lyon, this is very embarrassing. It certainly is, dear. But I... I told you, you were going to do this for me without charging me money. And you are, Mr. Lyon. Shall I tell you why? Yes, it'd be very interesting to hear. I believe you are in trouble now with the French police, Mr. Honey, I'm always in trouble with the French police. Why? Yesterday they sent for me and asked me to identify you. Asked you to identify me? Why? What's the keeper? I do not know. It is something to do with counterfeit money. Oh, yes, that casino business. That happened in August in Cannes. They never got me on it. The money was passed, all right. They know that, but they can't pin it on me. I was there on the casino, Mr. Lyon. The police discovered that I was next in line at the cashiers. When they found that out, they came to me. They want me to be a witness against you. They want me to swear that I saw you passing that counterfeit money. I see. And, uh, what did you tell them? Well, first, I asked them questions about you. Hmm. That's how I found out that you are, well, who you are. I see. I'm kidding. Tell me the truth. Did you really see me pass that money? No. As a matter of fact, I didn't, but unless you helped me with my father, Mr. Lamb, I say that I did. And then, of course, you'd go to jail. Hmm. Well? Well, that reminds me of something a friend of mine was saying last night. The French have a nasty word for what you're up to, young lady. I can't remember what it is now. Blackmail's a bad word in any language. In a moment, Orson Welles returns as Harry Lyme, the third man. Mama Rudzinski. That's who I thought I'd apply to with my little problem. Mama Rudzinski is quite a character and a great authority on passports, frontiers, international laws in general, and how to break them in particular. Hello? This is Harry Lyme speaking. Harry Lyme, I want to speak to Mama. Harry, Mama. Are you? Lime, Mama. Harry Lime, I'm in trouble. I need help. Bad trouble? Sort of. Come up. I see you right away. An hour later, I'd filled Mama in on the whole story and was waiting for advice. Well, Ari, it's a tricky business. I don't need to tell you. The phony passport's easy. But uh, finding this man Muller in Romania and then uh, getting him back through the Iron Curtain, it's no joke. Look, Mama, I didn't come here to listen to how difficult it is. I want some help. Well, there are two ways. Yeah? The first way, you go to Romania yourself. That's the way I don't like. I don't blame you. A man can get killed around there. The other way is uh, through diplomatic channels. Well, the way you say it, it sounds easy, Mama, but... 
You know any ambassadors? No. I don't know any ambassadors, and neither do you. All you need is somebody high up in the government here in France. If you could just find a weak place somewhere, a weak place where you could uh, put some pressure. You mean blackmail? I don't like the word, Harry. No. I mean pressure. Just find the soft place where you can push. Hmm? Hey, where are you going? Sit down and make a nice glass of tea. Thanks, Mama, but I haven't got time. I've got to find myself one of those soft places. And then, Mama, I've got to start pushing. Pushing quick or else. Or else. It's that same old word, Mama. I don't like it any more than you do. Blackmail? Pressure, Mama, pressure. So long. <laughs> Monsieur Lyme? Yes? Monsieur Gibelet will see you now. Come this way, please. Thank you. Monsieur Lyme? Oh, yes. Come in, please. What can I do for you? Well, I'll get right down to the point, Gibelet. I know you're a busy man as well as an important one. Well? I have a favor to ask. Ah? There's a man in Romania. He's stateless. Nansen passport before the war. His daughter's here in France. She wants to get him out. Are you serious, Monsieur? Uh, Lyme. Such a thing as you are asking. Why, it's practically impossible. And I will be frank with you. I don't even know who you are. Lime, Harry Lime. I told you that all night. Well, you see, even on the highest ministerial level... It would be, as you say, practically impossible. I like that word, practically, Mr. Gibelet. It gives me a little hope. Yes, but... I know. Don't bother to say it again. You don't know me from Adam, Monsieur Gibelet, but there you see I have the advantage. I know you from Adam, Monsieur Gibelet. I even know you from Monsieur Gibelet. I don't understand. I've been in touch with a friend of yours. What friend of mine? A man called Brocco. What? Marcel Brocco. The name seems to mean a good deal to you. He said it would. Brocco is dead. But not Brocco's secret. Not your secret, old man. He gave it to me before he died. Now then, when can I expect some action on my client, Miller? Your client? The man needs a passport. Remember the case you said was practically impossible? Leave the particulars with my secretary. You will hear from me before the end of the week. Thanks, old man. I appreciate this. I really do. And when do I hear from you? Again, I mean, uh, blackmailers always come back. That's a nasty word, old man. Don't use it again. And you won't see me. Well, it worked. Whatever it was, it worked. I was holding a secret over a man's head, and I didn't even know the secret. Yes, whatever I was threatening the politician Givale with seemed to be a threat strong enough, because by the end of next week, Heidi's father was on his way through the Iron Curtain. She said I was wonderful, Heidi did. Asked how she could ever thank me. I told her that thanks didn't come into it. I'm not your benefactor, honey, remember? I told her. I'm your victim. About four months later, Julian wrote me from New York. This is Julian Moreau, my newspaper man. Dear Harry, he wrote, now that it's all over, I think you have a right to know the truth. The truth about Givale, I mean. I'm reading to you now from Julian's letter. Givale was born in a suburb of Paris. His political life began when he joined a group wearing black boots and brown shirts of a violently anti-democratic character. This was all during the 30s. Then, during World War II, came his big chance. 
He will see that this Givalet, while essentially a little man, is clever. He secures for himself very early in the German occupation a false identity card, and it is under the false name of Givray that he is a collaborationist, a Nazi stooge, and a black marketeer. His real name is therefore a good name. It is the false one which is bad. Now it's the beginning of 44. Convinced that the Nazis are near the end, he rushes forward to the fighting French and under his real name joins their invasion corps. Under his true identity, he gives them some assistance. And at the end of the war, the power of the resistance becomes overwhelming and their investigations far-reaching. So Givalet drops the false identity of Givray forever. Now notice, please, that his original name is above reproach since it was under the false one that he acted for the Nazis. Now, there's need for men like himself, modest, self-effacing, industrious. And so it comes to pass that the little fascist street fighter, the black marketeer, the collaborationist who betrayed scores of his countrymen to the Germans is triumphantly elected to the parliament as representative of one of the great historical parties of France. Well, now, my friend, we come to the Amazons. I gave them this title in the newspapers myself just before the war. Theoretically, the racket was broken up, but in fact, it was still flourishing in Paris until the very recent death of a certain Marcel Bracco. This gang worked in pairs late at night. Gangs of girls. Striking up casual acquaintances with visiting provincial gentlemen of a certain age and steering them to various nightclubs, finally to a cheap bar where the respectable old gentleman was invariably rolled, as you say in America. In other words, everything was taken from him, and if possible, afterwards he was blackmailed. Now, some such poor old fellow was being beaten up in a bar by Bracco and the others who worked in his gang when Givalet, driving home from an all-night session at the National Assembly, heard the noise. He was waiting for a traffic light to change, and seeing no police on the street, he went into the little bar to investigate. Now, Mark, this was a genuinely kindly act. The act of a self-respecting French citizen. And you see what it got him. Of course, the gangsters turned on him and beat him senseless. Going through his wallet, they came on his old identity card, which he'd kept for some reason or another, concealed behind a photograph of his mother. It was the card of Givray, the Nazi stooge. Thus, his secret fell into the hands of Bracco, who used it not to extort money, but for police protection for his gang. Very recently, as you may have read in my column, Monsieur Givalet was being considered for an important new post in the ministry. And then you, my dear Harry, came to him with your threats. Threats of exposing something the very nature of which, as it happened, you didn't even understand. Now, Givalet had begun to breathe again, you see, and to hope after Bracco had died. But your visit was too much for him. The French government had put a price on the head of Givre, the Nazi stooge. Givalet, the politician, didn't realize that his secret was safe. Perhaps he was right. A secret like that is never safe. And so it was that after some weeks of waiting for you to return, and of course you never did, his nerve finally cracked. And the very day on which he was to be confirmed in his new post, his housekeeper coming in with a morning coffee found him dead. He was seated before his desk where he had shot himself, seated before a blank piece of paper. He had not even written a note of farewell. I suppose at the end he found it difficult to decide who he could write to, what he would say, and above all, what name he would sign. Harry Lyme returns in just a moment. A few days ago, I was in Paris. 
I went into a little place I know near the markets where they make a wonderful fish soup. And who should I see having lunch there but Heidi? Heidi, an old gentleman I was sure must be her father. It was. She introduced him, and I sat down with him for a drink. So finally, I get to meet the wonderful Harry Lyme. <laughs> this is really a pleasure. Well, I'm glad you're with us here, Miller, on the sunny side of that iron curtain. Thanks to you, Mr. Lyme. Oh, no, really. But yes, <laughs> my daughter has told me everything. Everything, Heidi? Did you tell your father everything? Well, Mr. Lyme, I told him all the wonderful help. But did you tell him how you managed to persuade me to do it? Not exactly. I, uh, not I... exactly. What's this? Secrets? Why, Heidi, you're blushing. Heidi, I'll make a deal with you. A deal? I won't tell your father what you did if you let me take you both to lunch. <laughs> but that's blackmail. It's a nasty word, Mr. Miller. Let's not use it again. It'll spoil our soup. Orson Welles and Harry Lyme, blackmail is a nasty word from June of 1952 on tonight's big broadcast. Now, we've been hearing a great deal about the union unrest that's been going on, the writers and the actors in Hollywood. Obviously, they're looking for terms that will help safeguard against technological change. This was not entirely unlike what Bing Crosby was doing when he found himself being sued by Kraft Cheese because he simply did not wish to do the Kraft Music Hall any longer if he couldn't pre-record his programs. He'd seen what the AFRS was doing during World War II. He'd been on so many of those Armed Forces radio service shows. So when he got back, he said, I don't want to be in front of a live audience if I can help it, but I certainly don't want to do a live show. I want it pre-recorded so I can edit things out. I can record when I want to, and the network said... Are you nuts? Basically, he had this long contract. He said, I'm not going to fulfill it. Went, as I understand it, into court, and they said, as they had a few years earlier, I think with Olivia de Havilland, you cannot keep anybody under contract for this length of time. So as a free agent, he went to the weakest of the networks, ABC, just really getting started after its long tenure as NBC Blue offered them a pre-recorded program called Filco Radio Time. This is the first episode from Bing's new series, and just to make sure that he could really, you know, stick in the knife a little bit to the old management, he brought out the big gun, Buddy Bob Hope. So obviously you've got a Bing and Bob program. The ratings are going to go through the roof, as they did. For the show of October 16th, 1946, the premiere of Filco Radio Time, here's Bing Crosby with Bob Hope. On the big broadcast. When the blue of the night meets the gold of the day, someone waits for me. Carpenter welcoming you to the world premiere of Philco Radio Time, produced and transcribed in Hollywood with John Scott Trotter, his orchestra and chorus, the charioteers, Lena Romai, Skitch Henderson, and starring Bing Crosby. Oh. Well, Bing, here we are in a brand new program with Philco. What kind of a show are we going to have? 
Well, I figure on something effervescent, charming, gay, carefree, bright, sparkling, scintillating, ebullient. Uh, no dull spots, huh? Well, there may be a lull tonight. Bob Hope's coming over a little later, and this is a little late for him this time of the evening. But before Trowel Nose gets here, let's have some music, huh? <laughs> I got no mansion, I got no yacht Still I'm happy with what I got I got the sun in the morning and the moon at night I got no future, I got no plan Still I think I'm a lucky man Got the sun in the morning and the moon at night Sunshine gives me a lovely day. Moonlight gives me the Milky Way. Got no checkbook, I got no bank. Still, I'd like to express my thanks. Got the sun in the morning and the moon at night. And with the sun in the morning and the moon in the evening, I'm all right. Sunshine gives us a lovely day. Moonlight gives us the Milky Way. I got no heirloom, I got no kin Made no will, but when I cash in I leave the sun in the morning and the moon at night Leave the sun in the morning and the moon at night And with the sun in the morning and the moon in the evening I'm a-doing all First broadcast on Philco Radio Time. Looks like it's going to be a nice engagement. I don't believe in engagements, Ken. I think I'll marry these people. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> Move right in. Well, you should feel right at home with Philco, Bing. I'd venture to say that more people are listening to you right now over Philco radios than any other kind. Oh, say, that's that's a little alarming. How come? Well, if so many people already own Philco radios, how are we going to sell any? Well, that's, uh, that's just the point, you What's see, Bing. Thing? What's that? You've got the kind of a voice that wears out radios pretty fast. <laughs> Even Philco's. Well, that's good. Then we're back in business again. Sure, oh, sure. Fine. Not only with Philco radios, Bing, but you're a natural with Philco radio phonographs, too, because plenty of your records are spinning around on them every day. So whether it's your phonograph records or your radio show, you're right out in front with Philco. Right out in front, huh? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Say, you suppose I could get the Philco people to give the Pittsburgh Pirates a little transfusion, maybe? Good idea. <laughs> it's nice to know, though, Ken, that I'm with the leader in the industry. Well, I kind of feel that way about you, too, Bing. Look at the message I just got here from Jimmy Carmine, Let's vice president of Philco. You got it right there? Jimmy says, Dear Bing... Philco is proud to welcome you into the Philco family. On behalf of the Philco distributors and dealers in whose name this program is being broadcast, 
Let me say that it's an honor and a privilege to present to the world's largest radio audience the fellow who's tops in Philco's book. Signed, James H. Carmine. Well, Mr. Carmine's a very nice man to say so. Show him I appreciate it. I'm going to get right to work. Although singing with the charioteers is hardly work, I guess there's plenty of chaps that just love to barber a ballad with them. Tonight we're sailing out on Moonlight Bay. It's a very dreamy thing. to have you meet and listen to a young fellow who is creating quite a sensation here in Tinseltown. 
as well as points east, west, north, and south. This is a fine lad, a fine boy with a grand piano. Really a standout. Skits Henderson playing Turkey in the Straw. Was swing and twitch with the mighty skits. Yes, sir. Very <laughs> clever manipulating skits. It's really fascinating, your rhythm. Well, gee, I'm glad you liked it, Mr. Crosby. Mr. Crosby? Oh, skits. You don't have to call him Mr. Crosby. I don't? You mean he's a regular? <laughs> oh, skits. He's a gem. That boy is a gem. Let me tell you something about the man we're working with, skits, and ladies and gentlemen. Those of us who've had the privilege... Those of us who've had the privilege of associating with Bing realize that he's a pal when you need a hand. He's a clown when you need a laugh. He's a friend when you need a friend. And he's a singer when you need a sewing machine. <laughs> we are cooked. It's Bob Hope. <laughs> well, a tourist, listen to this. <laughs> 
Yes, sir, here we are, the egg and I. How are you, Dad? <laughs> How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Aunt Fuzzhead. Thank this you. is... Uh, <laughs> this is Bob Philco Hope. Welcome. I'll advertise anybody for money. You know me. <laughs> Welcoming back to the air old Droop and Sag and telling you folks to buy your radios from Philco because whether or not you believe in Santa Claus... Every week, they're going to bring you the bag. <laughs> or, <laughs> now that Hope's here, let's treat him right. We're a little late, folks, so, Bob, good night. Shoo, fine. Get, 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 get. Duck. Just a minute, Bing. I want to congratulate you on your going back to work. Thank you. I think it's wonderful the way you take such an active interest in show business, a man your age, and <laughs> it's a real thrill to see you at this microphone. Thank you. Standing. Well, if you get your hands out of my pockets, I'll sit down <laughs> So you're with a new outfit now, huh? Philco mm -hmm. It's amazing For years they advertised no stoop, no squat, no squint Now they have them every week <laughs> Oh, and I beat it Say, it's, uh, I want to tell you a sincerely happy hip mm. side. It's about time you changed yeah, sponsors. I guess I was with Kraft quite a long time. Long time. You brought home so much cheese, the mice around there had to wear girdles. <laughs> uh, well, at least I do feed my mice. Yours are picketing you. I've heard... <laughs> Don't get touchy. I'm sincere, and I think it's darn nice of Philco to give you this chance to make a comeback. <laughs> Back. Listen, Pelican Puss, I want <laughs> Wait a minute, Storkbaiter, look. <laughs> Just a second. But let's not write in things after we get a start. <laughs> what do they call your head? Operation Eggplant? <laughs> Anyhow, how can you get so hot under a collar you're not wearing? <clears throat> There you go again, it's worrying nice. about when you my get up dress. in the morning, you don't have to change, do you? <laughs> Kids wearing a pajama top here tonight. <laughs> Anything breeze. to save money. Oh, don't right. you worry about how I dress. When I first met you in front of Paramount, you remember? Mm -hmm. You were barefoot, and you were wearing a pair of Adolf Manjou's old golf knickers. <laughs> Those were my knickers. I was playing the lead in Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> I don't know about the huckleberry, but you borrowed a fin. <laughs> My greatest performance. I don't remember. <laughs> I, I don't remember that incident, but if I borrowed five bucks from you, I'm going to pay it back. When? The next time you catch me barefoot in front of Paramount. <laughs> well, I just saw your last picture, Monsieur Beaucaire. I may not have long to wait. <laughs> You out of your mind? The way I played the part of the barber in that picture got raised. Well, you figured to be a good barber. Look at the experience you've got shaving expenses. <laughs> Cutting down Dolores' silly allowance. <laughs> to her. I just live in that Pepsodent tube to please the sponsor. You know that. <laughs> they squirt me out every morning and I'm gone. I'm away. <laughs> Get you out, huh? Anyway, you'll find out about expenses. Wait till you see what those Pittsburgh pirates cost you before your kids are old enough to be outfielders. Mm. <laughs> Don't you worry. Have no fear. Of course, now you're making money with the hot dogs with your horses and everything. I understand. Don't <laughs> you worry about the Pittsburgh pirates. They're definitely going places. I hope so. They've been in the cellar so long, the whole team has the bends. <laughs> 
What a baseball team. They finished so far behind this year, the last eight games were football. <laughs> well, listen, don't knock the lads from Pittsburgh, Bob. Didn't you buy into the Cleveland Indians, little beaver? Let's talk about that. Where are those boys? Yes, I flew back to see him play last month. I was a little disappointed. Why? All men. <laughs> But next year, we're going to have a terrific player. He's oh, yeah? a rookie from the three-eye league, and he's sensational. What's so sensational about him? He's got three eyes. Oh, <laughs> Take more than three eyes to keep you from losing that cheap dollar shirt you're wearing. What are you talking about? The Indians are a real ball club. They're a sound investment. Someday I'm going to sit back, and the Indians will take care of me. Yeah, they'll take care of you, all right, just like they took care of Custer. <laughs> if things get rugged for you, though, I suppose I'll always be good for another fin. Thanks, friend. And if things get rough for you, you can always crawl into Manju's old knickers with me. You know, Bob, mm -hmm. I know that charm and manners count, but I like what you do. Put it there, pal. Put it there. No matter what my lawyer says, I've always liked you, too. Put it there, pal. Put it there. The day you bought that baseball team, it started quite a fuss. They loved me so in Cleveland that what else could they discuss? But now I hear the Indians want to give you back to us. You'd call a foul ball fair. Put it, Put it there. Oh, by the way, that Pittsburgh team, team, I hope it makes a go. Put it there, pal. Slip me some skin, huh? Drop that back in the bowl. <laughs> I'm more than glad to let them teach it. No, no, that's me, that's me. No, it's me. That's, you, that's yeah. me. Put it there, pal. <laughs> Put it there. Don't croon into the umpire's ear and hope to win a game I found a line. <laughs> I'm proud to be a pirate. And the pennant is my aim. The way you make your dough, at least you live up to the name. Your loyalty is so rare. Put it there. My colleague. My crony. My cohort. My friend. My second sacker. My third base coach. <laughs> chums to the end. Like meat and potatoes. You better lay off potatoes. Boy, what a plan. Don't put it in the paper. Don't put it on the air. I'll finish. Don't put it on the shelf. Stay in there. Put it there. Dropping in, Bob. Think nothing of it, pal. I'm glad to do it. Well, so long, pal. <laughs> Wait a minute. Aren't you going to give me one of those new radio phonographs? You've already given me the needles. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll put in a word for you with the Philco people. And by the way, I, I'm running a little low on toothpaste. I'll put in a word for you with Dr. Cowan. Thank you. <laughs> you see. You see, folks, there's nothing mercenary about us. It's, it's just, just friendship, that's all. <laughs> but we have a charming young lady. That, young lady, I know you've heard her on many of my broadcasts and in pictures many times. So long, Bob. Uh, I, uh, I'm still here. I'm not going. I'd oh, like no? to... What, what was that you just mentioned about your, your, the girl? Well, never mind. Why don't, you, why don't you go to that home that you've never left? Go ahead. I... <laughs> oh, look. Scat. I'm sticking around to meet this gal. Listen, Ape Head. Can't you see you're not getting anywhere? Daddy, what was that? You're dropping a Ape bomb. Head. You're, you're progressing a doll. You're wearing your bare midriff a little high this season, aren't you?
help. Come on, out of here. What do we have to do? Call a plumber's assistant to get your mouth out of the mic? Mr. Seriously, before I go, I do want to say something. I think it's very nice of you to invite me over here tonight on your premiere. Very sweet. And I, just like the rest of show business, wish you the best of everything on mm -hmm. your new program. Mm -hmm. I know you'll be in there punching as usual. Mm -hmm. And I want you to be a smash because you Thank are you. one of my favorite sons. Thank you. And I say, bless you. Yes, sir. Yes. I guess we won't, uh... We won't need Lamore in our next picture, huh? Has anybody got a can of DDT around? <laughs> now that old Pepsodent Fangs has left, I guess it's safe to bring out the lady. Here's lovely Lena Romay singing Love on a Greyhound Bus from No Leave, No Love, Van Johnson's new opus. Go ahead and sing, Lena, and I'll show the problem child at the door. Tickets the other night. The Union Station was lit up bright. The crowd was shoving with all its might. But we all settled down for a trip on a Greyhound bus. That's us heading west on a Greyhound bus. The Holland Tunnel was open wide. We rode along underneath the tide and found ourselves on the Jersey side. What a glorious time for a trip on a Greyhound bus. No fuss, heading west on a Greyhound bus. Stop for hot dogs and soda pop. Ask the driver, how long do we make another stop? And the sun disappeared from view. The stars came out like they always do. Then I cuddled up close to you, and we both fell in love on a trip on a Greyhound bus. That's us in love on a Greyhound bus. Harrisburg, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. On to Wheeling, West Virginia. Then to Columbus, Ohio. And Indianapolis, Indiana. Then we had a slight delay when the driver mistook Illinois Fry away. A Texas storm made us hesitate. A bridge washed out and we had to wait. But we'd be happy in any state park we both fell in love on a trip on a greyhound bus that's us in love on a greyhound bus thank you Lena thank you Lena and vocal group leaving the greyhound bus in love we bump into Cynthia and she's in love Oh, love, love, love. Well, I guess you can't knock it, though. So if John Scott is ready, I shall uh, attempt... Uh, 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 just a minute, hmm? Bing. Don't you think we ought to have a word from the Philco man right now? Oh. oh, well, have you cased the clock up there, Ken? You know, Hope stayed on quite a while tonight. You mean he overstayed his welcome? That condition existed upon his arrival. <laughs> well, how about the commercial? Oh, yes. Well, have you got it there? Mm -hmm. Let me see it. Yeah. Hmm, it's very happy stuff, isn't it? <laughs> really ashamed to lose it. What am I saying? Well, I had a hunch this was going to happen, though, so I spoke to the Philco people, and they said if we ran out of time tonight, we could just tear up the commercial. So I'm doing the same forthwith. I get 
back to Cynthia's being in love, Professor Henderson is going to supplement my rendition of this rather nice ballad written by Jack Owens, one of our Philco boys on Don McNeil's Breakfast Club. As a summer breeze Her smile is sunlight through the trees For Cynthia's in love Every rose is blushing As she passes by they see the love light in her eyes For Cynthia's in love Every night When the stars above come shining through You will find her in a rendezvous Starry eyes, breathing sighs. Cynthia, I'm glad your lovely dream came true. For I'm the one who worships you. My Cynthia's in love.
Well, that's about it for tonight, but we'll be back next week uh, again with another musical on team, Avec Monkey Shine. Stuff. time next week and hear Bing Crosby, John Scott Trotter, his orchestra and chorus, the charioteers, Lena Romaya, Skitch Henderson, and Bing's guests, Spike Jones and his city slickers. This program is produced and transcribed in Hollywood and is directed by Bill Morrow and Myrtle McKenzie. Off on the road to radio immortality, Bing Crosby, and Bob Hope from the very first Philco Radio Time from October 16, 1946. And that wraps it up for tonight's big broadcast. Thank you so much, as always, for joining us on tonight's program, and we'll see you back here next week as we engage in further explorations of what made radio great back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. I'm Mark Magistrelli. And I'm Mike Martini. Tune in again next time for the big broadcast. Tune in again next week for another evening of outstanding entertainment on The Big Broadcast. This is Mark Tipton, your announcer speaking. Produced by Media Heritage Incorporated.